Hey guys, I want to welcome back Yukon River Knives as a sponsor for the month of December. Yukon River Knives exists to support missions work in rural Alaska by providing outdoor enthusiasts with premium quality knives. A portion of every purchase goes to helping advance the gospel in rural areas in Alaska. Featuring both handmade and high quality production knives, Yukon River Knives has curated some of the finest and most useful knives on the market. Go check out their products at yukonriverknives.com and enter Shepherd's Crook at purchase for a 15% discount. Hey guys, I have one of these knives personally and I've been using it this year for hunting season and it's done a phenomenal job. These are going to make perfect Christmas gifts. You're not going to be disappointed. Go check it out. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Hello, and welcome back to the Shepherd's Crook. Hope you guys are all doing well. Today is the very last day to get in on the discount for the Yukon River Knives. I want to thank so much Jeremy McMorris and everybody at Yukon River Knives for partnering with me for three months this year. And it's been a great time getting to know those guys. If you want to pick up one of those knives, follow the link in the show notes, and you can. Today is the last day. All right, today we're going to talk about how I became a Calvinist. Let's pray. Father, we need wisdom and direction as always. Holy Spirit, lead this time. I trust that you're going to. And I pray for those that are struggling with the doctrine of salvation specifically, with soteriology, that they would understand your grace to them, and they would be blown away and changed forever by your love and grace for sinners. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, I want to give you a little bit of a backstory and then bring you up to what happened in my life. This is several years ago now. This is going back before I started in ministry. So this is going back into the mid-2000s, really back to 2004. But there was a shift in me that happened in my early, ended up being in my late teens, early 20s. And that shift has stayed with me and will stay with me the rest of my life. When we talk about the word Calvinism, one of the things that I push back against, because I don't necessarily like the term for myself, I'm using it for today's video just to explain what I'm talking about. But the reason why I am not necessarily fond of labels is because people will say you have a Calvinistic perspective on the doctrine of salvation, for instance. And today, specifically, we're talking about soteriology. Confessionalism came later for me. Today, we're specifically talking about the doctrine of soteriology. I don't have a Calvinistic perspective on the doctrine of soteriology. I have a biblical one. And every other perspective, whatever it may be, is simply wrong. You might say, well, that's a little bit prideful or arrogant or something like that. I'm okay with that. Uh, because the biblical doctrine of salvation is not predicated upon being theologically precise on every single point to be saved because we are saved by Christ and we are saved by God single-handedly, not because of our doctrinal precision. And so the, the good thing about the gospel of Jesus, as proclaimed in the scriptures, as taught in the scriptures, is that we are saved in spite of our doctrinal precision, in spite of who we are. God has been gracious to us, and a part of what's imputed to us is a perfect theology. We are counted as having a perfect theology, even though we don't actually have perfect theology. I don't have perfect theology. And yet it's one of the uh, right things, it's one of the elements of Christ's active obedience that we get given to us. It's counted to us. And so in that imputation of righteousness, I have an imputed theology as well, which is incredible. 
so if you're out there and you're like, oh, I don't believe in this way of uh, the doctrine of salvation, well, you're wrong, but there's grace for you. And so the Bible is so clear on this. It's not an issue of is it clear or is it not clear. The Bible is just unbelievably clear on the doctrine of election and how salvation works. How can a person be justified? The Bible is so clear. And it's not, and I know that there's going to be people that listen to this and say, well, blah, 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 blah. I see it differently or whatever. Okay, that, that's fine. Um, but the Bible's clear. And I want to bring you through my process of how I got to see the scriptures and the clarity of the scriptures. And instead of rebelling against it, saying, yep, that's true. And on the front end, keeping and holding truths in the scriptures together, because in a lot of times with theology or conversations about this, what ends up happening is, is you pit scriptures against each other. And you guys have been listening to me long enough to know that we love all the Bible and we should always love all the Bible. And the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It complements itself. And so Romans 9, yes and amen. Romans 10, yes and amen. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a mystery there. Read Spurgeon's sermon, God's will, man's will. If you can't reconcile that kind of thing together or his sermon called election, and it'll be really helpful in just saying yes and yes to all that the Bible teaches. And that's what I say when, when we say I have a biblical perspective. It, it True, reformed understanding of soteriology embraces a whosoever will calling to repentance and faith. So that you can't pit those things together because we love all of the Bible. And yet there's uh, clear passages. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but a God who has mercy. So I'm, I'm just going to walk you through the process, not, un, not unpack everything that, I, that the doctrine of uh, salvation and how it's taught in the scriptures, but just to ex- explain to you the process that got me there in my early 2000s. So I, we're not talking about a biblical perspective here. We're just talking about what the Bible teaches on how a sinner can be justified. How, how can a, uh, a man be saved before God? in all of that from election to glorification. But, so today, again, we're not talking about confessionalism, we're just talking about uh, soteriology and and that process of change for me. Every pastor has a biography of theological change in their life at some point where you look back and you see that there has been some changes there on some things, small, some larger things. Certainly there's been some shiftings that have happened over the years in my life, but the shiftings that have happened have been shifts of growing deeper into, the, into God's Word, not massive cataclysmic changes. In fact, Spurgeon's got a really good quote about this. He says this, I thank God that, that he taught me early the gospel, and I've been so perfectly satisfied with it that I do not wish any other to know any other. Constant change of creed is sure loss. If a tree has been taken up two or three times a year, you will not need to build a very large loft in which to store the apples. When the people are always shifting in their doctrinal principles, they are not likely to bring forth much fruit for the glory of God. And I'm so thankful that early on, I have this foundation of biblical truth that's going to stay with me the rest of my life. And I want that for you. I want you to land on the doctrine of soteriology and the doctrine of salvation and stay there and grow into it the rest of your life. God's word is so rich. We don't need all these theological shiftings over the years. We do need to grow. We need to be more, more biblical. That's what we want. We want to be more biblical. But by the grace of God, we can fall in love with God's grace and stay there and keep growing in it the rest of our life. So everybody has these pastoral theology, or like a a biography of of theology that they have as I look back. And here's mine. Here's what happened to me. I I went to a church, grew up in a church that was a run-of-the-mill, kind of a a free will will Baptist-y, Pentecostal-y, kind of Arminian, I mean, semi-Pelagian church. That's what I grew up in, a run-of-the-mill evangelical church. 
But I grew up in a free will home that just loved talking about free will. Just free will, free will, free will, free will. It was just a free will environment, and that was the church I was in as well. A typical environment where it's kind of like this Trojan horse idol where free will is just the, the ultimate. It's the starting point. It's the thing that you can't question or talk about. And you bump into passages in the scriptures, and you're like, oh my gosh, that seems completely blasphemous. So I remember we had a group of buddies that were going around talking about Romans 9 when I was a kid. And uh, high school, actually not really a kid, but in high school. And we just read it, and it just seemed so strange. So, I mean, it was completely outside of anything that we had thought about before. You know, we wouldn't have verbalized this, but certainly we thought Romans 9 was wrong, and Paul was off his rocker that day, no doubt. But that's where I was. That's what I grew up in. I go away to college, and I go away to a, a Pentecostal college. And at Pentecostal college, I'm reading people like Clark Pinnock, and I'm thinking through philosophical questions to theology, and I start to wrestle with the knowledge of God. Because the knowledge of God, to me, was inseparable from the decrees of God. And many would say, well, just because God knows doesn't mean he decrees. And they try to parse that out and make that a different thing. And yet, I still bumped into it because if God does know everything that tomorrow holds and knows everything that today holds and knows everything that the future holds, then the future has to be what God knows it to be. And I am not, therefore, free to do anything outside of what he knows. And my big dilemma was God is creating people he knows they're going to not choose him. They're not going to follow him. They're not going to walk in his ways. So he's willingly creating people that are going to be in hell. And this is just the, again, the, in my mind, thinking through philosophically the will of God and the knowledge of God and how God could do this and remain good and just. And so what that led me down to was Arminianism, hardcore Arminianism, and just fighting for free will was open theism. And reading Gregory, Gregory, Boyd, uh, Gregory Boyd, being exposed to Clark Pinnock, open theism started to make sense to me in my mind because if God restrains his knowledge and doesn't know who is going to be in and who's going to be out, he can create without having this you know, character default of creating people that are going to be in hell and there's nothing they can do about it because God knows his foreknowledge. And so if you've worked through this before, be intellectually honest here and just connect the dots between the knowledge of God and the freedom of the individual. If God knows what tomorrow holds, then tomorrow has to be the way God knows tomorrow to be. Nothing can be different. So the, from the shirt that you put on, from the hat that you put on tomorrow, if God knows exactly what shirt I'm going to put on, then I can't, unless God's wrong, put on any different shirt. I just, I'm, I'm bound to that knowledge, unless God bounds himself, bounds his own knowledge. And then there's some freedom there. You open up the freedom. This is how open theism worked in my mind. And I worked through that and was thinking through that. And at the same time, I was being exposed for the first time to actual real preaching. So at that same time I'm thinking through open theism, I worked with a young man named Matt Chandler. And as I was hearing him preach, I remember thinking, man, this is preaching as I've never heard it before. This is incredible. Really started enjoying it. And then I heard a guy named Neil McClendon preach. And I was like, man, this is really, really good. I really like this guy preaching. And then I read the book Velvet Elvis. I'm going to connect the dots here in just a second. And I thought, oh, ew, I don't know about this, but I kind of like it. And I got back to college in the summer of 2005. And I was, after working in the summer times with, the, with the, uh, Matt Chandler and Bodie Bauckham and, and uh, Neil McClendon, and I started looking up this thing called podcast because I wanted to hear Rob Bell preaching. That's, that's what I did. Couldn't find Rob Bell, so I found Matt Chandler. And I also, in searching for Mar Marcel Church, I found this guy named Mark Driscoll. And I was thinking, Who, who's this guy? I like this guy. So I started listening to these guys, listening to these sermons, and it was just insatiable. I just kept listening to these sermons, and they're preaching through books of the Bible. I'm absolutely loving it. And yet, at the same time, I'm reading Gregory Boyd, The God of the Possible, and 
having these college classes and thinking through and thinking, yes, I'm definitely, <laughs> this is how confused and messed up I was, I'm definitely an open theist. In fact, one of my final papers, I claimed to be an open theist and turned it into the paper, turned it into the, the professor, and that that was where I was. And that was, uh, um, you know, it was just that, that's my, my mind was so screwed up and I, I was not driving into the scriptures from my theology. I was just trying to figure things out, how things worked. But then everything changed when in the course of one week, as I was wrestling through all these questions, I began to think about, and actually the sermons were in the course of one week a little later, my questions about open theism started with this. If God doesn't know what tomorrow holds, that means I am teaching him what tomorrow holds. And my big philosophical uh, problem that turned into theological problem for me was, wait a minute, am I teaching God? Am I God's teacher? Is he beholden to me for his knowledge? And that, that one thought made me think, that doesn't sound right. And keep in mind, I've been hearing these sermons and hearing these guys preach. It's like, this doesn't sound right. And I went to the scriptures. I was like, wait a minute. Does the Bible teach that I teach God? Is that anywhere in the scriptures? And it was just exploding for me. And then, in a, a, a period of time, not very long after that, what ended up happening is I heard three sermons in a row on the doctrine of election by Neil McClendon, Matt Chandler, and by... Mark Driscoll. And I was raging. I just was like, this is insane. This is crazy. And I just, I was so upset about it. But what it did was it drove me, drove me to God's word. So I, I went in God's word. I was in Romans chapter 9, Ephesians chapter 1, John chapter 6, John chapter 10, and all these different places throughout the New Testament and the Old, looking at uh, Pharaoh and God hardening Pharaoh's heart, looking at all these places throughout the Bible. And I ended up just saying, this is right. It changed for me. This was in late 2007, right before I started preaching in 2008, there were, I think, so no, this would have been summer of 2007 when these shifts happened for me, and it turned, it completely turned my world upside down. It just changed everything for me, and it changed everything for me for the better because it was like I was seeing the Bible for the first time. It was like, it's like, oh my goodness, these paradoxes that I used to have, I can hold in tension now because the Bible teaches and it embraces us, it calls us into embracing truth that I can't necessarily figure all out and tease out and parse out and, and, and figure out how they all go together. But it invites me into this mystery of saying, this is unbelievably true and clear when it comes to God's sovereignty. And this is unbelievably true and clear when it comes to man's responsibility. And I don't have to pick one side or the other. And nor do I have to figure out how all, all that works mechanically. But I recognized and saw by the grace of God the beauty of his grace, and it changed my life completely. And friends, it's changed my life, and it still changed my life forever. As William Cooper wrote in his famous hymn, uh, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And friends, I'm telling you, the grace of God, when it gets a hold of you, will change you completely. So that was my change or shift from a sloppy, run-of-the-mill, evangelical understanding of the doctrine of salvation, which is more semi-Pelagian, into the proper biblical understanding of the doctrine of salvation. And I'm just... God set me free. It was phenomenal. And I haven't looked back and don't plan on, like Spurgeon said, ever looking back. That doctrine will be, uh, for me, for the rest of my life, the foundation for me, God's grace. And it will be there for just forever as I continue to grow and understand and change on certain things and smaller things. But that to have that foundation has been truly uh, a blessing. And when other people see the grace of God, um, man, it's it really is life-changing.
Guys, you have your stories I know as well, uh, and I hope this has been helpful as I've walked through this with you to think through this. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. And I hope you have a great rest of your happy New Year's Eve, and I hope you have a great 2023 as you look back and reflect on everything that God did in this last year.